Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for downloading. Thanks for all the support in 2016. We got so many new listeners. All of you guys helped spread the word. So many of you came out to see uh, to see the tour, and it, it's uh, it's been 2016 was a fantastic year for me. I'm really looking forward to 2017. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about some future plans um, at the end of the episode and right now as well. I thought I'd start with the charity of the week, which I recorded uh, with the guest and. Fairly certain anyway, but I can't seem to find anywhere. Um, so I'm just going to uh, record it myself. So the charity of the week suggested by uh, Paulo Forney. The guest this week is the uh, Radix Center in Albany, New York. I'll just read a little blurb quick and then I'll tell you a little more about it. The, the Radix Ecological Sustainability Center is a new not-for-profit educational organization based in inner city Albany, New York. The purpose of the Radix Center is to promote ecological literacy and environmental stewardship through educational programs based around demonstrations and sustainability technologies. So, um, anyway, if you're in, if you're ever in Albany, New York, which I'm hoping to get back, so I've been looking through um, through this website, um, which is radixcenter.org. And they just have this awesome kind of solar-powered center set up where they give demonstrations on growing food and raising um, uh, different animals and and that sort of thing, and and kind of uh, promoting um, uh, promoting sustainability in urban environments. This is something that I'm hoping to talk a whole lot about, a whole lot more about. Um, this year is something that I'm interested in. It's something I need to work on personally, uh, to be honest with you. I, I am, I am uh, uh, kind of uh, do as I say, not as I do conservationist, but I'm, I'm trying. I get better and better as time goes by. And um, But like, like turning off my cell phone before recording intros and outros, I still have a long ways to go. Um, but... Uh, anyway, it's something that I'm, I, I've tried along this tour. There's been a few different organizations that I tried. It just didn't work out with my routing. The tour has just been way, way, way too intense, um, uh, to try to make all but a few stops to make a couple quick recordings. But, um, 2017, I think this is, um, one of the, I, I've mentioned a few other things, but, uh, this is one of the things that we're going to be moving into. I'm, I'm way into, uh, technology, which we don't really talk much about on the show. And, um, 
and I think sustainability and conservation and just kind of efficiency in general is really, really interesting. And so we will be doing more of that in 2017. But anyway, um, today we're going to be talking about neurons. Neurons in your nose. Ooh. Um, but uh, tune in, make sure and listen to um, uh, the the backside of, of the episode as well because um, – because I I want to talk about a few a few plans with with uh, the the future of the podcast for 2017. I'm planning to to really ramp it up uh, quite a bit. So enjoy today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm at the University of Albany talking to assistant professor in the Department of Biology, Paolo Forni is joining me, everybody. Did I pronounce that correctly? That's perfect. You're, uh, you're Italian, correct? Yes. So in case people are wondering what the accent is, um, this is, uh, I think you might be the first Italian on the show. Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> um, so uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what you, you're interested uh, in uh, a lot of of uh, the the olfactory, the the um, a bunch of neurons in the nose that are that are taking in um, hormones. And, and yeah, that's that correct. So, basically, I'm interested in the nose because the nose uh, is is a, a very special part of the body. Where uh, if we think about the nose, we think immediately about olfaction and things related to olfaction. That is what the nose has been made for. But probably the nose had other functions before that. And in fact, during embryonic development, there are neurons that form in the nose and from the nose migrate into the brain. So this is a kind of a unique thing that very few people know about. That there are neurons that form in the periphery of the body and then they integrate in the central nervous system. And, and, and these neurons that do this uh, very unusual journey are fundamental to control the ability of vertebrate species to procreate because these neurons control the ability of the brain to instruct the gonads to produce the sex hormones. In fact, there is this uh, area of the brain called the hypothalamus where these uh, neurons that, that, that I study and other people study uh, called the GNRH neurons that stands for gonadotropin releasing hormone 1 so these neurons go in the hypothalamic area and then they control the activity of part of the, of the brain that is a, a, a factory of molecules that um, is a, a, the, the hypothesis. And, and, and from here we have uh, uh, the pituitary gland, sorry, the pituitary gland, and the pituitary gland produces a, a, a follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, that will instruct the gonads to produce the sex hormones. So these, these neurons that originate in the nose control our ability to go through puberty mm. and uh, so to be fertile. And something, if something goes wrong, there is no next generation. And this is true for all vertebrate species. Are, does it go wrong in, in humans? Sometimes? Oh, yes, it and, does. And, Quite and often. so there's, there's people that just don't hit puberty because, because of a, a problem with the neurons in their nose? Exactly. And some of these people have... Uh, lack of puberty and inability to smell properly. And this is a syndrome called Kalman syndrome. And, and this syndrome uh, mainly affects males rather than females. And, you know, males are unlucky. We, we, we get more uh, genetic diseases than, than, than females. And, and so, yes, there are people that cannot smell properly and, and don't go through puberty and this was a mystery for a long time. And this syndrome was the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. So I'm just curious, what, what are the effects of not hitting puberty besides just being a sane person for the rest of your life instead of instead Well, of it affects a lot crazy. of things because, you know, we all change dramatically during puberty. Physically we, and everything. And mentally. We, we, it's, I mean, your hormones 
you know, there are people that have a lot of testosterone and they are kind of violent and very manly and, yeah. and hairy. And, and so are there people that have less testosterone and the amount of testosterone we have changes throughout life. Old people have less testosterone and younger people have more testosterone. And, and also for, for women, I mean, think about the, the menstrual cycle, the estrogen, the progesterone, the hormones affect dramatically what the, how our brain functions, our mood, and and also how we place ourselves in the society. Meaning, uh, our we are animals, and we a lot of the things we do we do them because of some sexual related meaning. Uh, our social interaction are often soaked of uh, sexual. Uh, uh, um, communication right. and interactions. Right. So, this, this reproduction stuff is fairly important in, right. in our lives. Exactly. And on top of that, think about you never go through puberty. Think how difficult it is for a teenager to, to not to go through puberty when everyone else is doing that. And... Um, I'm, I'm curious, is there... So, so now that this is something that was... Uh, this was first noticed, what did you say, early 1900s? Yeah. Um, so, so now that we're aware of this, is there any kind of intervention? Absolutely. So there is a, a big center uh, at Harvard where they basically, people are treated with, with hormones or treated with uh, what the neurons are supposed to produce and therefore uh, uh, puberty can be triggered mm. artificially. And so there are people that have genetic diseases that would prevent them from going through puberty and procreate that that can be induced to have a puberty and to be fertile and to have a relatively normal life. Hmm. So it is possible, but not for everybody. So that's why we need to, to work on this, on this matter because certain people don't respond to treatments and therefore... Mm. Stuck where they are. Is is there so so? There's these developmental problems where uh, I mean, basically. So are these people kind of very youthful looking? If, not if necessarily. They don't... Not necessarily. They have very youthful looking genitalia. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Baby dick is, called, is yeah. the scientific term, I believe. Right. Um, Micropenis. <laughs> Micropenis. <laughs> so. Are, are there any, does this affect someone's actual like longevity or anything? Like, are there other health complications or is it, or is it just there? I'm just trying to understand what, what does end up happening because so it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting observation on what exactly puberty does to our psychology and everything to, to understand the difference between a regular person that hits puberty and someone who doesn't and continues not having gone through puberty. Right. So one thing I, I need to specify. So people that have Kalman syndrome oftentimes have other symptoms. Mm. So there are people that have just lack of sense of smell and delayed, delayed puberty. There are people that have more severe defects that can affect uh, pigmentation. They can have uh, uh, problem craniofacial defects. They can have cleft palate, they can have other stuff. And that's, uh, there are different forms, different profile of this, of, of this syndrome. And so certain people have a number of defects. And now we, we, what is interesting, now we, we start to understand what is the link between all these uh, uh, phenotypes mm. that can appear uh, in people that have this syndrome. Um, so... Uh, Longe- so people yeah. people with this problem tend to have this other problem can have, associated like, with it. That- yeah, for example, uh, they can they can have deafness or yes, other hmm. things. And, and, and now we know why because uh, that's basically the reason why I, I do what I do. So I study developmental biology, and so I try to understand how this system of how these neurons get from the nose to the brain. And and what does it mean, how? It means what are the other cells that they interact with during this journey? And 
what is the developmental history of the other cells and what is in common between different phenotypes that you can have in someone that has this syndrome. Let's say there is someone that, is, that has a form of deafness, lack of sense of smell, and lack of pubertal onset. What's the link? So the link, for example, between these phenotypes was missing for a very long time. And one thing that I did in the past, I, I, I started to, to look closer to what was the interaction of these neurons that I studied with other cells. And there, is, there are some cells in the nose that are a population of glia, that are neural cells but are not neurons. And I found that these neural cells that interact with the GnRH and with, and with the olfactory neurons have a neural crest origin. A neural crest is, is a, a group of cells that gives rise to a number of derivatives in the body, but uh, there are some neural crest derivatives that are very important for the function of the ear, okay, for your ability to hear. And so when I discovered that these cells that interact with the generation had neural crest origin, mm-hmm. I published that, and another group observed that people that have deafness and Kalman syndrome had a mutation that was affecting specifically those cells of neural crest origin, and that was the link between deafness and lack of sense of smell hmm. and lack of uh, proper generation uh, migration. So, so uh, there, there was just some uh, a, a lack of connection to this neural crest. No, the neural crest is basically is, is a group of cells that during embryonic development migrates in different parts of the body mm. and forms different cell types, okay? So if something goes wrong with this initial group of cells, you might have a lot of things that go wrong in your body, okay? And so if you understand that a cell that originated from that initial group has a role, has a, a specific role in a part of your body, and when you have a problem with that part of the body, you also have defects, for example, in your pigmentation or in your palate or in your ear or in your craniofacial structure. Well, that suggests that you might have a problem with the cells that gave origin to all these parts of your body. Hmm. And so that's the thing that we do in developmental biology. We try to understand what is the common denominator between different phenotypes that you can have, for example, in a syndrome. This must play a pretty big role in evolution, then, if it's having this kind of an effect on, on uh, all these various, th- this small origin. So, if, uh, so there's, there's a problem with this initial cell, and these initial cells go out, and they replicate and turn into more cells. And so if the or- original one, if there's an error, uh, this, this comes out as some sort of phenotype with, um, what were the other examples besides... Um, Besides skin pig, uh, pigmentation, pigmentation or, or, or craniofacial defects and so on. So basically, yes, if you have a group of cells that gives rise to a different part of the body, if you have a defect with that original group of cells or with a molecule that is important for this group of cells, you will mm-hmm. have a defect that propagates in different parts of the body. And so you might have a syndrome. A syndrome is when you have multiple defects that appear at the same time. And one of the things that is intriguing is to understand why these defects appear together in some individuals. And so in the Kalman syndrome, that is a relatively simple syndrome because you must, to define, for a doctor to define, uh, to, to uh, diagnose that you have Kalman syndrome, it's sufficient to see that you don't smell properly and you don't have pubertal onset. Kalman syndrome. Then... If you have other defects, that's a Kalman syndrome plus other problems. But now, with with uh, uh, advancement in in in, in molecular uh, uh, developmental biology, we understand the link between different defects, and so we might actually have gonna have more detailed uh, uh, diagnosis in the future. So we will be able to uh, understand from all the defects that appear together what the mutation could be, and what uh, uh, kind of cells are affected in the individuals that have common. Is it 
I mean, I imagine it's overwhelmingly um, a negative thing to have a defect, but sometimes if it's, say, changing your, your facial structure in a way that is, uh, is it possible that it's making, sometimes making someone slightly more attractive to a given population, or is that... It's usually not the case. That's not the case, no. usually. No, okay. it's usually not the case. Um, so I'm curious, if, if there's... If there's um, because every environment must have a wide range of variation within the amount of hormones in the environment, say uh, a big city. And if you live in a big city in a warm climate, as opposed to if you live in the North Pole or something like that, it, it, and there, there must be some, a large difference in, in just the sheer number of hormones within your environment. Does the environment affect puberty in any way? Uh, no, uh, I don't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get what you mean. Different hormones in the environment, uh, uh, pheromones or yeah, yeah. Like, like if you're if you're surrounded by more people, there's going to be more pheromones that you're. No, you no puberty. Puberty is is dictated by a biological clock in the body, and so what can affect the onset of puberty is what you eat, how much you eat. If you don't eat enough, if you eat too much, if you eat wrong food. So differences in pubertal onset, yes, there are many that are effect- determined by the environment and there are these so-called endocrine disruptors that are uh, pollutants that we, we can find in the food. For example, there are plastics that, uh, that, that release molecules that can affect our endocrine system. And so you can have kids that go through puberty too early or too late. And so there are a lot of factors in the environment uh, that can positively, positively accelerate or delay uh, the onset of puberty. And in this country, there are, there are many examples. I mean, the, the meat uh, treated with hormones, you know, the, it's, it's terrible. You see kids that have breasts and they, they start puberty at an age where they're not supposed to. And so, yeah, there are factors but that, that can affect puberty in, in weird ways. Then, if you don't eat enough, uh, 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 that also can affect uh, the pubertal onset. So the body, the, bo- the body responds to many variables, mm-hmm. but it's not really how many people are around you, but it's more what you eat and yeah, well, I mean, that, that's what I would have assumed, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm just curious how much these, these olfactory neurons play a role in, so, is, is it just like they, it either turns on or, or it doesn't? So the link, the link between the, 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 the generation neurons that are the neurons that we study and the olfactory neurons I, is still controversial, actually. They form in the same area. Because, because the, the point, I mean, I understand that if you have, if you've, if you've been getting lots of big meals and you have more resources, maybe your body can afford to go into right. puberty a little right. earlier or can expend more uh, testosterone or something if you're healthier at the time. I, I get all of that. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I've, n- I've never uh, learned about the role of. It, of the so basically, factor. your question is if, if it smells and pheromones can trigger puberty. Like if you have a rat in a cage that has normal working um, olfactory neurons but it's still i mean you could still limit whether or not it's actually getting these these hormone interactions from the environment anyway uh, right? that that should not really affect the, the onset of puberty hmm. so no that that it, it pheromones pheromones uh, affect the behavior yes so if you put a rat or a mouse in well, actually, it's interesting. If you put it in, 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 in a cage with just the pheromones, not much happens. You need pheromones and another individual to trigger any kind of behavior. And mm-hmm. pheromones can trigger aggressive behavior or can trigger sexual behavior. So aggressive behavior, for example, uh, 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 a male mouse in a cage with another male mouse that had, and they never met before, they detect each other as males, and the first reaction is usually to fight. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if mice or rat cannot detect pheromones, their interaction is going to change. They're not going to fight; just going to smell each other and, you know, hang out. Right. So 
but but these don't really as far as i know uh, we we don't know uh, anything about a direct uh, correlation between being exposed to pheromones and and uh, pubertal onset on top of that we still don't know how much humans are able to detect pheromones it's controversial in fact i mean the part of the olfactory system that is uh, uh, responsible for the detection of pheromones in human is um, vestigial. We have this uh, a very small vomeronasal organ that has been extensively described during development, but we don't know if it survives after uh, when we become adults. This so, was something in, in our evolutionary past that is just kind of yeah. still hanging out but not doing much these days. That's what we think, yes. Okay. Um, but I, so one of the very first episodes, I th- well, the first episode of this podcast, we talked um, a bit about um, pheromones and effect of some of the some of the mating studies where you take people and and have them wear a shirt while they exercise or whatever it might be, right, and then put right, it in right. a bag and have people select based on smell what they consider the most attractive. Right? Um, is is that? Uh, is that some of that stuff? Is that in a, related to your work a little bit? Vaguely. So uh, um, we do we do study uh, the the neurons that that form the vomeronasal organ that are the ones that are responsible for for detection of pheromones. But we are more interested in in understanding. So this is the thing. The olfactory system and the, and the vomeronasal system are very fascinating because you have many different versions of the same neurons. And how do we detect molecules from the environment? Each neuron expresses a receptor. Mm-hmm. And each receptor is able to recognize some feature of a molecule. The simultaneous recognition of multiple features of a molecule allow our brain to create an image of that molecule and to recognize it as such. Okay? So basically, we have a combinatorial representation of a molecule. So to create a mental image of a molecule, you need many neurons that are able to recognize an aspect. So one very fascinating aspect of the main olfactory system and vomeronasal system is how do we arrive to generate such a diversity of neurons? Because each neuron expresses only one kind of receptor, and they can choose which receptor they're going to express out of thousands of genes available. Mm. And they pick only one. And so each neuron, or each the groups of neurons that make different choices... And the choices that they make allow us to have an array of receptor that enables us to represent the molecules that are in the environment. So one thing that we study, we're trying to address... So, it, so to like overly simplify things, these, these are like you, you, have, uh, you have like square pegs and circular pegs and, and, and that's how the neurotransmitters are fitting and connecting in these receptors... It's not neurotransmitters. Basically, you smell cake. Right. Okay? And you can actually understand if there is ginger in the cake or cinnamon in the cake. So you have a lot of molecules that your brain is detecting at the same time, and your brain generates an image. A cake with cinnamon. Mm-hmm. Okay? So basically, you detected like, let's say, 600 molecules. Mm. Your brain was able to recognize each of these molecules and put together and a picture. put them together and you created an image in your brain mm. cake with cinnamon mm. okay it's an amazing thing so basically what you just did by smelling the cake you analyzed the the, the molecular composition of the thing and created an image and this happens because basically y- y- your nose has been able to detect all the features of the molecules and and then gen, uh, provide the information to the brain that was able to create this image. So one thing that is very intriguing is this. The olfactory and vomeronasal epithelium that have all these neurons 
are able to generate and regenerate these neurons throughout life because these neurons are exposed to cold air, hot air, uh, stuff that kills them continuously, and we generate these neurons over and over, over and over. And we generate pretty much the same combination of neurons with different receptors. And so we keep uh, uh, enough neurons with different receptors to keep on representing the world as it is. Mm. Okay? So one intriguing question is how do we regenerate neurons, so many different kinds of neurons? And so this is something that we're trying to, to understand, analyzing the vomer nasal organ that is a small olfactory subsystem that is responsible for the detection of pheromones, where we have a smaller number of neurons that can be generated and is, uh, is a relatively small epithelium, so we can count a lot of stuff and, and analyze how certain molecules can influence certain choices that the neurons do during the process of generation and regeneration. Mm. It, it kind of used to be thought that, that there wasn't such a thing as neural regeneration. Like if you, if you killed a brain cell or whatever, it was, it was gone forever. Is, this, is, this is sort of, well, I mean, I guess neuroscience is new in general, but, but this idea of, new, of regeneration, isn't that, that's, that's kind of in our recent history that we started to understand that's, this, right? That's true. So until the 1990s, there was this idea that the, we couldn't make new neurons. Then it was discovered that we do actually keep on producing new neurons in specific areas of the brain, that there is limited neurogenesis in, in the hippocampus that is a part of the brain that is, respons- that is responsible for generating memories, mm. okay? And there the neurogenesis, how many neurons we form is, is influenced by our um, habits, People that you, it, it looks like uh, if you have an active life, you generate more neurons there, and uh, antidepressants help to generate new neurons in the hippocampus and so on. And really? then we have yes, yes, yes. That's a very intriguing thing. So basically, uh, apparently, when people have uh, uh, certain forms of severe depression, you have a decrease in generation of neurons in the brain. And apparently, a lot of antidepressants work by uh, facilitating the generation of new neurons in this specific area. It's if you block the, the ability of the brain to produce new neurons, you neutralize the effect of certain antidepressants. So basically, is something that needs to happen. Why? We still need to understand. But yes, so the brain can generate new neurons. But what I was talking about, and let's go back to that, yeah, sure. is not central nervous system. The olfactory epithelium is in your nose. Right. It's connected to the central nervous system, but it's peripheral. And so we do generate new neurons in the peripheral nervous system. The olfactory and vomerasal epithelium are extraordinary in their ability in the number of neurons that they can generate throughout life. So, but we, 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 have been, we, we, we knew that for quite a while. Um, I, it's, it's my understanding that females in, in like the third trimester kind of do this sort of new rewiring almost, kind of a, uh, they, they basically, they get a whole fresh set of uh, new neurons right before, uh, right before childbirth. Um, Right there's a there's a lot of like there's yeah kind there of is a, a lot of stuff that happens in the going. brain of, of uh, pregnant women. Uh, uh, my colleague Joanna Workman here that works in psychology could tell you much more than me about that. But apparently there is during pregnancy the brain shrinks, becomes smaller, mm. and why it becomes smaller we don't know. It's still not understood if cells decrease in volume. If there is, a, there, there are a lot of physical changes. And then after birth, it regains partially or totally the volume as before. So uh, the brain, when, when women say, I have a baby brain, it's actually kind of true. There is a lot of stuff that goes on there. 
Uh, that is, I, I'm going to get some letters about that comment. I'm just kidding. Um, I, it, well, it's interesting because it's right when, um, right when, uh, well, one, it's my understanding that that's why sometimes females smell weird things during pregnancy and, and have a different sense of taste because, because of all of this new kind of regeneration or atrophy or whatever, whatever is happening in the olfactory senses. That's that could be, but, but actually, I mean, there is a, a paper that came out not long ago that was again focusing specifically on the vomeronasal organ where they, they showed that during pregnancy, there is generation of different neurons in, in, in the vomeronasal. So the composition of the epithelium changes. And that makes sense somehow that, you know, if you think about it, uh, uh, a pregnant uh, uh, organism has a mission mm-hmm. and needs to be sensitive to specific things in the environment, maybe more sensitive to what is in the environment. In fact, oftentimes pregnant, pregnant women smell, have a, a, um, a stronger sense of smell. They, they get bothered by a lot of smells that they detect uh, with, uh, uh, in, they become very sensitive. Especially to in the first trimester, right? Yes. When, yeah, yeah. When the baby is like the, or when when the fetus is the most vulnerable, and and you really have to be careful what you're putting in your body. Yeah, but but what really happens in that's one funny thing that we know a lot of things about, let's say mice. But there is a lot of things we don't know about humans because we don't section every person to see what happens yeah. during pregnancy. We're not dissecting so pregnant we, women. <laughs> that, that's the thing. And, and it's very interesting that we try to understand to understand what happens in different organisms to try to understand what, what happens in humans. But we miss a lot of information about what happens in humans because the, the observations are very limited. Right. Um, hmm. I, I mean, it, it's still it, that does make sense to me why the brain would would shrink a little. I, I mean, just in, I'm sure I'm sure I'm so far off, but just intuitively, if your life is about to go have this dramatic change, you're it's, it's almost a, a way of your brain kind of making room for a whole lot more information and for this big change in in your life. I mean, I, I, it sounds like we don't totally know what's going on. And, we don't know. And I'm sure but that's, I'm that's very a, far from the case. But That's a romantic idea. <laughs> <laughs> I it could be. I'm not a scientist. I'm a, I'm a science communicator. I, I take some liberties sometimes and romanticize things. So let's just say I'm absolutely right. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so so back to your um, back to your work. What, what are you? Um, what, what are you kind of working toward um, with all of this? What, what what are what are some of the goals for some of your work going forward? What do you want hope to understand and learn right. more about? So, as I mentioned before, so we have this syndrome where you can have lack of sense of smell, lack of puberty. But an intriguing thing is that in families where this happens, you can have individuals that have only lack of sense of smell, some individuals that don't go through puberty, and some individuals that have both things that happen to them. And so, and another thing that it links to what we just discussed, the observations on humans, on human bodies, are very limited. So there is a lot of information missing. And so what I'm trying to understand in my research is do these neurons that form in the nose and go to the brain really go from the nose to the brain on the olfactory neurons or they travel on something else? And there is, for example, this uh, mysterious nerve called cranial nerve zero or nervus terminalis of terminal nerve. That is a nerve, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny nerve that has been described in many species, but we don't know anything. We, don't, we know very little about this nerve. So what I'm working on right now is trying to develop genetic tools that will allow me to highlight this, this nerve. So I, I try to find what we call genetic entry points. So genes that are selectively expressed by these neurons and not by other neurons in the olfactory area in order, for example, to turn this nerve 
into a green fluorescent nerve and study how it develops, where it wires, and start to understand what is the function of this nerve. Because what is uh, uh, somehow funny, inspiring, and intriguing for me that, that, that I'm a scientist, that there is so much stuff that we don't know. And we don't know stuff about I'm, I'm, parts of the body. <laughs> I'm being reminded of that quite a bit right now. But parts of the body. Yeah. It's not just an only molecular mechanism, but we actually, you know, there is a part of the engine that we don't know if it, if it exists or not. Mm. And if it exists, because and we have to find it because it's a tiny part of the engine, we need to understand what is the function of it. And so... Uh, that is one thing that we're trying to address in, in my lab. So we are working on different animal models and trying to understand mm. if this nerve exists and what it does. So are are you? So this is just animal models, and you're doing this through dissection. It, it, there, there's no way to use any kind of uh, like dyes or anything like that in, in humans to figure out how yes. this is? So basically there is a, a dear friend of mine called Paolo Giacobini that, that works in France and, and with a, another friend, Filippo Casoni, they just published a beautiful paper on a journal called uh, Development. And what they did, they characterized the development of this system in human fetuses. And they use a technique that allow them to make these fetuses tra transparent, completely transparent, and to use antibodies conjugated with uh, fluorescent molecules that mm. allow them to highlight the nerves in in the nasal area and these neurons that I studied, the generate neurons, and see how they travel from the nose to the brain. And what is intriguing that in human they, they saw that what we see in mice is quite conserved. So putting dyes in humans to trace this is difficult because all these uh, uh, migration happens during embryonic development. You cannot do that mm. to a developing embryo that right, is alive. Right, 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 of course. So, yeah. Um yeah, well, that's uh, how, how did you uh, how did you get interested in uh, in in this specific area of research? In it was kind of serendipitous. Mm -hmm. So uh, I always make fun of the fact that I study uh, migration and reproduction, and this happened because I met a girl when I was in Italy that, that was studying in Georgetown. And I decided to join her in Washington, D.C. And so I needed to find a job. Now who's romantic? <laughs> and uh, I applied for jobs and I got the postdoc, postdoctoral job at NIH in I, a lab. I've made a lot of lady decisions like that as, as well. And those are the best. <laughs> and so they were studying these and I got a position and... So it was like, well, I really like this. And now, so I'll study the nose. And now we have, and now we have two babies. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um, uh, well, that's a very cool story. I, uh, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add? Oh, no. um, well, that's very informative, uh, and I, I can't wait to uh, learn more uh, about this uh, in the future. It'd be fun to learn how the brain works. Is it? Oh yeah, it's an, it's an exciting thing. It would be nice to have a better understanding of how the brain works. Um, well, thank you, Paulo, for for joining me, and thank you for having me. Appreciate your time, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I'll talk with you next week. All right, guys. Once again, the charity this week is the Radix Center. You can go to radixcenter.org. Org. If you're ever going through Albany, go and check it out. Like I said, I'm hoping to next time I'm through Albany. My my, um, as far as kind of tour routing and whatnot is incredibly uncertain at the moment. But I have a lot of cool stuff in the works, uh, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But maybe you're like, hey, I don't I don't live in Albany. I don't I don't uh, I I want to support something um, in my area. Just Google Sustainability Center in your area. Maybe there's something around. Check it out. I'm not telling you guys to do anything in particular. I'm just giving little nudges 
in the direction of kind of all of us pitching in to make the world a better place. I don't, I think if all of us put in a little bit, there's plenty of people out there that aren't going to, and are going to, uh, uh, you know, take advantage and everything else. And who cares? We'll move forward without them. Uh, and in spite of them. So uh, I, I think it's, it's not that hard to, contribute a little bit even if you don't have the money to do so to um volunteer with a local organization or just go and, and check into things and and spread knowledge and you'll have more interesting conversations and yada 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 you know the spiel so um this year 2017 i am so this, this year's Main focus, I mean, I'm still doing um, the good trip stuff. I think that um, I think that I will be recording a special of it this year. That's that's one of the big goals. Um, I've already been in talks with a few different people, um, but I can't say anything more than that right now. But I am optimistic that that's going to happen. I think I may be doing a bit of international stuff. I, I was planning on doing a lot of international um, stuff with this, and that might be put off until 2018. But I'm planning on doing a little bit of that. But I'm also, um, I had a little bit of stuff free up on my calendar, and I'm avoiding taking regular comedy club dates, doing my regular stand-up right now um, for kind of, as long as I can. I'm just going to do a few here and there because this is how I make my living. But, but um but I think that uh, I, I want to start really pushing um, to do the live Here We Are podcast I already have. So in March, once the once the tour is over, I already have lined up, like basically as soon as the tour is over, I have one 100% confirmed, two very close um, right away in March. I think that I have some pretty solid leads on a few other ones. Um, and if you guys have any suggestions for areas, like maybe you've seen um, something similarly in your area, some place where people, you know, get together, kind of smart, interesting, fun people to have some drinks, listen to scientists, talk about some mind-blowing stuff, and uh, and, and me tell a few jokes about it. Uh, if, if you know of a of a good small, I think like hundred seats. I, I actually have some real some bigger venues than that lined up, and uh, you'll you'll get to hear more about that uh, soon. But for now, I want to start small and kind of um, it, it's just going to much like it with my psychedelic show. There's going to be a lot to learn in the transition. I'm hoping to do twelve live here we are podcast episodes in 2017. Um, that's starting in March, so a little over one a month, and I think I'm going to blow that out of the water i think optimistically i'd be doing two a month i think that that might be a a little bit of a stretch but um but this is what i'm working on ramin and i are working on figuring out some solutions to um to kind of figure out where you guys are and where the best places where a, a live here we are podcast is going to work i'm also uh in talks with another organization that i'm very excited about uh, more announcements coming probably next week, actually. And and by the way, you can always go, if you're on the Here We Are podcast website or shanemoss.com, um, you can always go and sign up for my email list. I ha- you will I will not be annoying you with my email list. In fact, I don't think I've ever sent out, maybe I've sent out one or two mass emails. I very, very rarely do it. But I also, but that, that's another thing that I just need to get better at. But it also allows me to, you can put your zip code in and so that I'm only reaching out to you when, say, I'm bringing my psychedelic show or my um, my live Here We Are podcast show through your area. And then you don't have to be, I, I hate being inundated with mass emails, even organizations that I'm interested in. I don't, I don't like getting blasted relentlessly um with that and so um you're not going to get that from me uh i should i should be sending out at least one a year uh, i should be doing more than i do actually but 
Um, I'm just really excited right now. I just wanted to share with you some some of my um, my projects that I have going on for 2017. Um, and thank you guys so much for spreading the word and and making uh, this podcast has so many more listeners than it had at the start of 2016. It's insane. It's like four or five times more listeners um, than we had, and I think we can do that again in 2017. So uh, you guys are awesome. And of course, those of you that listen to the end are my favorite. I'll talk with you next week. Have a good week and a good New Year's. And um, good luck with that new gym membership and all that good stuff. Hey, hey, it it doesn't work out. doesn't work out. You tried. <laughs> you know, you tried. Um, but anyway, uh, what am I... What am I talking about, guys? Sometimes I just get riffing. That's fine. You understand. Um, anyway, next week is a repeat guest. When there's a repeat guest, you know that it's going to be a good one. Or I wouldn't have them back. Why? That wouldn't make any sense. So next week, fantastic episode with uh, Celine Melcoach. And I'll talk to you then. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> <laughs>